Hey there, this is Fred Bissaro, and you're listening to Metal Matters, the official Gimme Metal podcast, where we explore all things new, some things classic, but all things heavy, with my co-host, Michael Bernard. This week, we're honored to have multi-instrumentalist, musician, and longtime favorite Brian Cook on the pod. Growing up in the Pacific Northwest, Cook first became known via his involvement in the highly influential Botch, who released two beloved LPs before calling it quits in 2002. From there, Cook participated in both indie rockers Roy, as well as post-hardcore favorites These Arms Are Snakes, both of which called it quits in the late 2000s. Cook is currently with the much-beloved Russian Circles, the massive power trio Sumac, and his latest project, Tormented Glory, which sees Cook tackling the songs as a solo musician. We sat with Brian to discuss the early days of Botch, current state of touring, and music journalism in 2021. Stick around. So wait, is it, so Corn is or isn't on there? Corn is on the two LA shows as, okay. as, main, as main support, I believe, or co-headlining, I'm not sure. But wow. so I I have some some interesting, uh, uh, both Corn and System of a Down. Not, it's actually not particularly interesting. It's just fucking 90s teenage anecdotes. But first time I saw <laughs> System of a Down, they were, they, they were the first of three on, um, on a tour with uh, Slayer and Clutch, um, that Diabolus and Musica tour. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, they got booed off stage uh, in, at the truck in Philadelphia uh, with the whole crowd chanting stupid of a name at them. Uh, nobody, had ever, <laughs> nobody had ever. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody had ever heard them before. And I, I, I don't I don't think that they had anything significant out. And uh, yeah, like a year later, they were, you know, this like gigantic force. Um, yeah. The corn thing was even wilder corn. Like 94 or something like that. I, I feel like I might have even told this story on the show. I saw corn. First of three opening for house of pain and biohazard oh, weird. yeah <laughs> at, at the tower theater in upper darby pennsylvania and they played a couple of songs nobody knew who they were they had a demo uh they uh they played a couple of songs people were ambivalent and then jonathan davis s- steps off stage and steps back on wearing a kilt and playing bagpipes and yeah. <laughs> the next thing you know, the whole crowd is just like screaming at them, and like, <laughs> and, and like, like, like in a pretty gnarly way, like booed slash threatened them off of the stage. And wow. so, yeah, mm-hmm. both I've seen both of those bands, and then yeah, six months later that like that blind song comes out and they're like the biggest band in the world. So both of those bands I've seen boot off stage and then turn into like gigantic horses within a year. <laughs> we, I saw my first introduction to corn was they, 
opened for orange nine millimeter and sick of it all back in like 95 in Seattle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or maybe they might have been like between Orange Nine and Sick of It All. But I just remember it was you know, everyone was excited about Orange Nine at that point. And mm-hmm. like Sick of It All doing an all ages show in Seattle was like a really big deal because they I don't know if they had at that point. But then like right in between there was corn and everyone was like, What 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 is, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> so but they were giving out those blind uh singles. So I remember we we like the, the botch fan had the blind single in there and we would always just, yeah, we were always like unhealthily obsessed with, uh, with it in a, yeah, not entirely unironic way, but, um, yeah. yeah, it's weird. It's weird how like, you know, all that stuff was such a gateway to people that were probably two or three younger years younger than we were. And now it's yeah. like, has this veneration status that is like hard to, hard to reconcile with what you, like what you saw at the Trocadero or something. Like that. <laughs> yeah. This is yeah. canon now. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's um, I, I think about it as far as like Slipknot goes, you know, I, I heard Slipknot for the first time a week ago, you know, it was a tweetable experience. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like, like it, like it wasn't bad. I, I, I actually like, I, I liked it, but, um, you know, I, I, I'm like, I think just at the cutoff point where people six months younger than me, they are like institutional and my age over nobody's heard them. Yeah. 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 Have you, have, have you guys heard Slipknot? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I definitely remember the wake up and bleed song, you know, off the first record or whatever this big single was, but I think that was kind of the beginning and end of my exposure. Yeah. yeah. I, I forgot that. I don't know the names of the songs, but there's no one. Uh, it was like a big song off of the first record. And I remember at that time, like, I don't know. I was just, I was trying to be, that's right. I was trying to be a journalist and I was like, I, you know, I should know what this is about. I should know. And I was like, wow, this is terrible. I'm not into this at all. <laughs> but, you know, it was just like, I, I kept up with them. And then, you know, as obviously as I got older and started working in like metal journalism, I feel like, you know, it's just kind of like that and like, like Lamb of God. And like, those are like the Titans that I had to pay attention to all the time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know it's actually a funny thing though. I saw you were talking about corn earlier. It's like when I went to college, um, my roommate—I didn't know my roommate—but my roommate was luckily he was into heavy music, even though like he was from like Tennessee and like you know not really exposed to like a lot of different shit. But our bonding experiences—he was like, "Brett, let's go see. Let's go see." Uh, this Deftones tour is like Deftones, Corn, and the first Limp Biscuit tour, I oh, guess. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like pre DJ Lethal, and uh-huh. and I always remember, like you know, like uh, what, what I forgot the guitar player. What's his name? I forgot his name. But Wes Orland. Yeah, Wes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. He came out looking like a weirdo, and it was. I remember thinking that was sick. And then Fred was wearing a sequin 
uh, Adidas jumpsuit and then like, or Adidas, you know, like uh, workout thing. And then like he had carved, instead of getting cornrows in his head, he had like carved lines in it. <laughs> it was the corniest thing I'd ever seen. It just, I don't know. It, it felt, it just felt so like, like a uh, suburban, like, uh, you know, I'm gonna, I'm, I want that look, but I can't get that look yet. So I'm just going to settle for this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. Maybe from a distance, maybe, you know, if you're you know, <laughs> separated by a 12 foot barrier at the concert, you might've come across like cornrows, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you need LASIK for all of his LASIK fans. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, if you're going to like, you know, it, like, if you're going to like scream break stuff, like you might as well just like commit to it with the haircut. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Limp Lim Biscuits and uh, an interesting one. Uh, I, uh, I, 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 I never, I, they, they weren't my thing. Uh, I, I, I never really understood it. It was like, you know, kind of like post judgment night as like a band. Um, yeah. And like, yeah. it, it, it wasn't for me, but like, Oddly enough, like West Borland is like an incognito, like total, like heavy music head. And yeah. like, yeah, he like he came out to some of our shows and wound up like kind of becoming friendly with him. And so it made me go back and listen to like some of these Limp Biscuit records. And, uh, I, I mean, I can't say that like I love all of the presentation, but there's some like really kind of genius hooks and moments in in a lot of it, like just, like just shit that I would have never thought of. Uh, yeah. And so, like, I, I, I now have a uh, a new appreciation for the band, and I will probably. God, I hope he's not listening. I will probably never, uh, n n never independently go back and like listen to them. But like, <laughs> right. I, yeah. I, I, I would be stoked to see them uh, for sure. I'm yeah. kind of, I'm kind of bummed that they had to cancel their uh, their Irving Plaza show here because of COVID. But uh, got to do, got to do, dude. They were playing yeah. Irving Plaza. Wait, Whoa. were you gonna go, Brian? <laughs> yeah, well, I was on the list. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm jealous. Actually, I would have gone to that. That would be fun. Yeah. Actually, yeah, me and the uh, Ben Greenberg, uh, the the uh, one of the other uniform guys, and uh, my wife Andy were all on the list. Andy had not heard Limp Bizkit. Oh, that's <laughs> so sick! Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah somehow managing to avoid my biscuit that was like another thing like i was when nookie came out i remember being sort of like that was another one along with blind where i was like weirdly fascinated by it not in a like i'm enjoying listening to this but more just sort of like like our culture led us to this like <laughs> what were the variables that like made this happen and then the fact that it's resonating with people and it's becoming such a thing it's like how like like what is this demographic because it's yeah you know, all that stuff, the components, you know, are all sort of traceable back to things that I really like, but then the final form is just so bizarre and like, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't feel countercultural at all. It's just sort of like, or yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's, yeah. The, I think the funny thing was, is like, 
that, 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 you know, like in theory, I have been waiting for that style of music for a very long time because when I was little, I always remember like, um, I always remember like the anthrax public enemy thing. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm the man and all that. And think to myself, man, these, these are my two favorite genres and it's executed in a really fun way. You know, why is anybody doing it? And then there was all this thing, you know, like 24 seven spies and like, um, follow for now. And like all these bands are like, kind of like, like dipping their toes in the water, but nobody ever did like rap hardcore or like, you know what I'm saying? Like rap metal. And, when it finally came, I was like, actually, no, I'm not, I'm not there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. So, so you're never getting rid of your downcast shirt, huh? Or no, uh, not, not, not downcast, downset. Down down yeah. Very different thing. Very, uh, very, very different thing. God, I tried, uh, to, tried to listen to that. What is it? Hostility. Something, something, oh, something, something. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. <laughs> God. Uh, so hilarious. Whatever. We're going to see them opening for Earth Crisis. And the rumor was that they covered Burning Fight. So everyone was just like waiting for them to cover Burning Fight. And it's like, man, it's like, it got to be rough if <laughs> you're like the, the peak of your set is the, uh, the inside out cover. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did they do it? Oh, they did it. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it definitely sounded like inside out so i guess that was cool <laughs> yeah i i don't know if you would remember this and I, I honestly like like so much of the 90s uh is like kind of a blur at this point due to you know it being well over 20 years ago and uh, i don't know uh and just kind of like the tenor at the time but I remember like this goes back to the botch van and the corn tape. Uh, I remember a, like you guys either you guys were supposed to play at Stalic 13 in Philly mm-hmm. and your van, your, your van broke down yeah. and my friend Jeff had to go and pick you guys up. And no it way. was, yeah. <laughs> and and, it, it, and like, it was like, it was like a dream come true for him. Uh, he, he was like, he was like, so he was like, so stoked. He was like, he was like, I'm rescue, I'm rescuing the botch fan. I, I remember it being like a very eventful show. I think it might be, might have been the show that Stalic got shut down for the first time at, uh, because of like some some craziness that like that that went down there involving somebody's somebody's pit bull and somebody else's gun. Um, like to- to- totally bad thing. So I don't. I did. did I, I did. You guys actually play that show, or we did. We did. We. Okay. I think we just barely managed to play it. Um, yeah. I was not in the van. I, I rode with. Must have rode with Jesuit or something. Um, yeah. Like I was at the show without the other guys just like fingers crossed that they were going to show up on time. And, uh, yeah, if memory serves, we, we got there and we played and I, yeah, that was the only time we ever played Stalag. And I don't feel like it was around much longer after that maybe, but yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't remember the pit bull or the gun, but I, I definitely remember <laughs> that era of Philly shows. There was always like 
some weird thing where it's like, oh yeah, like some girl just got her head caved in with a brick, but we don't want to call the cops because we know who did it. <laughs> like, that that was very much what it was like for a long time. It, it that might not have been. It was one of two Dillinger shows. It was either like you guys and Dillinger, or it was Coalesce and Dillinger. Um, and, and I don't know, so just bad stuff. Uh, but yeah. but but again, it's like all of the bad stuff just kind of merged together to like one kind of like <laughs> romantically terrible scene. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, yeah, I remember always being like a little nervous about playing Philly because it just seemed like there was always that contingent of like total bruisers. But the the you know the R5 people are always like, oh you know, like brutal hardcore shows aren't really the problem. It's always like the get up kids or like promise ring where it's just like easy prey. <laughs> it's, it's, it's true. I mean, the, the most, the most violent shows I've ever seen were a Texas is the reason show. Uh, and uh, followed, followed just shortly by a get up kids show. And like the get up kids show did involve somebody getting their head caved in with a brick. Uh, the Texas is a reason show involved several people pulling guns. Um, oh my and God. It, it was, yeah, it, it, it was not, I mean, it was just like, it was worlds that like shouldn't exist on top of each other. Like, you know, kind of like, you know, emo indie kids who are just kind of out having fun. Mm -hmm. And then all of like, all the guys who were previously, into like you know snail trail bad luck 13 um kind of uh like like bulldoze school of hardcore we're getting into that and uh -huh. just kind of treating it like the same thing so they're yeah they're treating like <laughs> they're treating promise ring shows like bad luck shows and oh my god yeah. it was it, it, it like it was a horror uh, yeah, it was a horrible time. I like did I don't want to say it was a horrible time because there's something that's like really kind of like beautiful about it to me, right. like looking back, but um I, I I mean we object like we objectively live in a better world now. Uh, where like it, if that was to happen, like it, you know, like for any number of reasons, like the person who did it wouldn't be able to go and do it again. Um yeah most likely, but then nah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's definitely a, a, an air of lawlessness to, to 90s shows that doesn't exist anymore. And it's, yeah, there's drawbacks to that, but overall, yeah, I feel like it's, it's positive that, you know, you don't feel like you're going to get killed when you're <laughs> at a show or jumped or whatever. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. What was Seattle like back then? Seattle didn't really have that. Itch. Seattle was weird because we had uh, this teen dance ordinance all throughout the nineties. Um, so even at like the peak of grunge, there weren't really all ages shows in Seattle. Um, wow. Just because the, the city, I don't know if it was the district attorney or whatever, but he basically just said, you know, any live music has to be 21 and over unless it's like, 
a school event or a seated event or whatever. So all the shows are happening out in the suburbs or in like Olympia or, you know, a lot of shows at like youth centers and things like that because they were, they were exempt. So, you know, there's a lot of house shows and basement shows as a result, but we were also just so far off the standard touring circuit that we just didn't get a lot of things. And I think I just made like a really insular music scene where you didn't, you wouldn't have like the Philly thing because people wouldn't be able to get away with it. You know, there's only so many people. Oh, really? Shit. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. What do you now. think were the bands that were like um, key to you, like, you know, growing up and all that kind of stuff, like the local guys? It was definitely like Undertow was the, the big mm-hmm. one. Yeah. Yeah. Straight edge hardcore band. Just because, you know, I, I liked hardcore before then, but I always thought, you know, I was like 15. So I thought hardcore was something that like existed in the 80s. I didn't know there was like, contemporary stuff all i knew was you know minor threat and gorilla biscuits and youth of today or you know my understanding was that everyone had like crossed over into like the thrash world and then like the new hardcore stuff was over but then yeah saw saw undertow at a show and i was like oh shit these guys are fucking like heavy and you know they i think one of the first shows i saw them they like totally called out these kids at the show that were saying all this homophobic shit. So it was like, Oh wow. These guys are like, <laughs> yeah, you're like, like forward thinking people. These aren't like knuckleheads. And uh, yeah, that was, that was definitely something that was inspiring. And then, you know, we had like a lot of weird punk stuff. So there was like the whole area 51 to death wish kids to murder city devils pipeline of bands. Um, and that was, a totally different world, but you know, equally exciting to watch. And there's all that Olympia stuff too. So, you know, we had carp and unwound and mm. he had the profit. Of and, yeah. And then, you know, being from Tacoma, seaweed was like the huge thing. Like seaweed were the hometown heroes. So mm-hmm. that was, that was a pretty formative band in my high school years. Um, but yeah, those are kind of the main things, I guess. Like Undertow was definitely the big one. Mm-hmm. God bless John Pettibone. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Still out there. Oh yeah, he, he he's he's the best. How how are the uh, these arms are snakes shows? They're fun. You know, it was super stressful. Um, just because you know it's easy to relearn songs but it's hard to like relearn like chemistry and, you know, like being able to read each other on stage. And these arms are snakes are always pretty drunk and chaotic on stage. And so, but there is always like a little bit of an understanding of like, which parts were flexible, you know, who is the person to track if things got knocked off the rails a little bit. You know, and you just kind of learn how to like make mistakes, but write it out and get back, you know, I'll get back on track. But, you know, after 12 years of not playing, you lose all of that. So it's like, totally. Yeah. You know, it took a few practices just to sort of relearn the songs, but then it took, you know, several weeks to get back to the point where we felt like, 
when things were going to go wrong, which we knew they were, because that's just the nature of the band, like that we would be able to recover from it. So, but you know, it went well and there were definitely fuck ups, but you know, nothing it never fell apart. So that was important. Um, and it was just, man, it was just really good <laughs> to play through a PA on a stage in front of people. Yeah. Like, you know, I haven't been one of those, I haven't been someone that's like, oh man, I miss live music because I mean, I do, but you know, it's, it's fine to have a little time away from things. And, you know, I've tried to embrace COVID life as like a, you know, a reassessment of things or, you know, taking stock of, you know, personal, personal growth and whatnot. So, you know, a little break from the grind was, uh, you know, something to dabble in, but man, it felt so fucking good to play through a PA and like have like that energy and the nerves and all that stuff. So, I mean, with these arms, it was kind of, it worked out nicely just because the show was booked. Like the club approached us about doing it, um, you know, during the few weeks of optimism uh, in the early summer where, you know, the Delta thing hadn't really gotten hold so we were all super excited to do it and then you know as the delta variant kind of became more and more of a thing we started talking about like maybe maybe we ask for you know proof of vaccination and then by the time we were having the dialogue the club imposed that rule and it was the same thing with like masks where it's like man maybe we just need to like tell people they need to wear masks and then it was like not even a day later that the governor issued a mask mandate. So it's like, okay, well, good. So we don't have to be the, the bad guys, but at the same time, I, I don't mind being a bad guy with that stuff. Cause it's like, dude, if you're not vaccinated at this point, like don't yeah. come to a show. Yeah. Like, it's totally crazy. insane. Is that how this all happened by the way? Like the, but, these are like the, the club approached you. That's how this started. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. Cause I think, you know, Steve, our, our singer, is good friends with uh, a bunch of the staff there. And I think we'd always talked about doing shows at some point in time, just because when we, we broke up, we didn't necessarily go out in a blaze of glory. It was more like, a, like everything just sort of fell apart. So we'd always wanted to do some proper last shows, but, you know. Every, I moved to New York, Chris moved to Portugal, like it just wasn't going to happen. And then, uh, yeah, with COVID, it was like, oh yeah, we're, we're all home and we're not doing anything. And the club's like, well, if you're not doing anything, like you can do two nights at Numo's. And that seemed like a good way of, you know, getting back into things and, you know, booking tours and stuff with COVID just seemed so impossible, but doing like a one-off fly-in thing seemed like a much safer bet. I've been meaning to ask this question of like agents and artists and the whole thing, but um, the, for like months now, and I just remembered exactly what it was. So, uh, you know, like with everything changing and, you know, uh, obviously we all know that there's like under the table deals and all this kind of stuff when it comes to like paying these, you know, like uh, um, uh, employees for, for the venue and all that kind of thing. And, now we're seeing some of those because of COVID and like uh, the costs associated with a venue, 
we're starting to see like guarantees shrink a little bit or turn into percentage deals or something like that for an artist. I mean, it makes me wonder if this is short term or if this is another example of just kind of like sticking it to the artist, you know, um, long-term, you know what I'm saying? Like, are yeah. these, are these permanent? I, I, you know what? I don't know. And I don't know. It's, it's something I've been thinking about a lot, you know, I, I personally feel like they're probably like, it's probably short term in that. Like, I know that the people who, the people I know who are like, you know, who run venues, um, who manage to like, let's say, get money from save our stages or from any other grants. Like I know in my head, I think like, Oh, okay. Well, you know, these people have like, you know, like they're just going to open, open up and it's like, that's going to be that. And like the money should, you know, trickle down to the bands, whatever. But everybody I know who's gotten those grants, it's like going to HVAC stuff. It's going to like maintenance and repairs. Uh, You know, this is like spots that have been like in disuse and neglected for a year and a half. And so getting everything all back up, like it, it, it's not a matter of just like, you know, turning on the on switch and having that be that. For sure. For sure. So, so I'm, I'm hopeful that things will kind of reach an equilibrium, like a similar equilibrium to where they were. But I think that it might take possibly a few years. You know? yeah. like, I just always wonder, like, you know, like, you know, we, I mean, we all know. And uh, for the listeners, I'm sure, you know, it's part of this. I mean, like the way, the way the music works to some degree on, on the level that we're talking about is pretty much not that much different than like restaurant industry. You know, these are narrow margins. And so when we talk about being able to pad something big fucking deal, you know? Yeah. And so mm-hmm. I, part of me is like, part of me agrees with you. And part of me thinks that at this level, like, like, uh, you know, like the club owners and the, the agents and the, and everyone that's on the, on the one side of the fence are very cognizant of what the artist goes through and, and is more, is more lenient in that respect. But then the other part is just being, you know, fiscally responsible and like taking yeah. more money when you can, you know, I, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a weird dichotomy. Yeah. It's, it's tough now. Cause it, you know, every, I'm sure every club is very cognizant of, of the risk and you know, that, people are fiending for live music, but people might not be comfortable with the risk of going into a public space. So it's, it's kind of an unknown, unknown variable. And even, you know, how a show did last weekend isn't going to be indicative of where the collective wisdom regarding COVID is, you know, three weeks from now. So it's, it's tough, but I would hope once the confidence level in that evens out that the finances, you know, reflect the pre-COVID times a bit more, but yeah, who knows? Anytime there's like a major financial upset, there's always something that doesn't quite return to normal. So yeah, yeah. who knows? I don't know. 
Well, if there's one thing that's positive about all of this, I know that like a lot of bands, their their hands been forced and they really kind of buckled down with like merch and like alternative ways of like making money. And I think that's that's definitely been a positive for a lot of bands. I think you know. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, speaking for myself, it's like if you're doing this full time, you kind of turn into autopilot mode, you know, a little bit where it's like, well, this is how this is how the album cycle works. And this is, you know, how we write songs and, you know, having to rethink all that is frustrating and it creates a bit of a a lag and productivity and all that. But it's also kind of nice to you know, actually have to re-examine everything and, you know, you know, actually think about what you're doing a bit more and, yeah. you know, make, it's a, you know, like Russian circles are making a record and it's exciting to be making a record that feels like something different for us. Cause it's, you know, we've always tried to do like a, you know, a variety of approaches and, and have some, some dynamics in terms of, the timbre and tone of our music, but you know, after seven albums, you, you have kind of like mined the bandwidth of, of your, your sonic scope. And now it's like, okay, well we've had to like do everything, you know, in logic remotely. And, uh, I feel like that's automatically going to make for a different sounding record. And that's kind of exciting. So, you know, some of that, some of that, like, that change I think is going to be really positive and exciting. Like I think a lot of the records that come out of COVID times are going to be, uh, yeah, kind of see changes for artists. And I think that'll be exciting to witness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I don't know how you guys have noticed this, like from a, from a, I don't know, the perspective of, you know, being sort of behind the scenes, but like no one really wants to talk about their records being COVID records, like all these bios that I've had to write in for bands. It's like, I don't want to talk about like, we're all, we're all in COVID. Like we're all going through some yeah. shit. So I don't yeah. make record about my, my personal struggle with COVID. Cause yeah. Like, but at the same time, it's like, well, why not? Cause I mean, it's like, everyone's going through shit, but everyone's shit is, is different. You know, everyone's got like very distinct hurdles that they're, uh, they're going through and you know for some people it might just be a financial dilemma for some people it might be a health thing or like family shit and yeah i don't want to hear a bunch of albums about people's covid experiences but i do think it's like, yeah everyone's going through fucking like probably the most significant 18 months of their lives up to yeah. this point yeah i'm 100 with you on this brian and like you know, even if like, you're not saying like, you know, the word COVID out loud, like, you know, if it's like, we're all stranded on our individual desert islands with our pod, like, you know, there's still a lot of shit that happens within that pod, you know? Um, and I, I can think of some really like some really remarkable like articulations of that, um, you know, like, like, for instance, like, you know, like the Lingua Ignata record that just came out, you know, that's like almost like an entirely like a COVID record, but like, it is not about COVID, you know, it's about like, 
like a life experience during COVID. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, like, I feel like every, every human being, yeah, like exactly like you said, it's been a very eventful 18 months for, for all of us. And uh, speaking of, uh, of COVID records, uh, did you do the, uh, the torment and glory record entirely in COVID? Is that, was that, was that a, a project that you've been working on for a while or? Like? Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, I mean, some of those songs are super old, you know, definitely pre COVID pre, you know, pre the last decade. Um, but you know, I, I definitely recorded it all, uh, during COVID uh, over January, basically of, of this year, just cause January is always the month where in Seattle it's you know dark at three and, yeah. and just cold and rainy and depressing. And I always get seasonal affective disorder. So it's like, I need to have something that I'm working on and it seemed like a good time to do it. And I needed to get better at, you know, knowing how to record at home and just felt like a good way of, of yeah, doing a bunch of different kinds of self-improvement projects all at once. It's like learning to record better, rehabilitating my voice after having vocal cord paralysis, um, you know, getting these songs that were just little finger exercises that were sort of stuck in my head out. <laughs> so I didn't, didn't have to think about them anymore. Um, and yeah, in that sense, it was like a total COVID record, but you know, a lot of the material was, you know, five to 10 years old at that point. So, yeah. Was it something that you've been threatening to do for a long time? Or you know what I'm saying? Or was it more just related to COVID and something to do with COVID? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, like back in the late OOs, uh, a friend of mine, uh, my friend Damien, who runs like a little noise <laughs> cassette called, uh, called dead formats uh offered to do a tape for me of like basically just kind of like noisy folk songs and uh not dead formats sorry dead accents um but uh i tried to do do these songs at that point in time but i just didn't have the the expertise either with recording or with just you know the kind of production choices i wanted to make to uh make it happen. So one of the songs wound up on a Russian circles record, uh, praise be man. Like the last song off of Empress was like an early, an early example of that, that attempt. But I just sort of gave up after that and, you know, still kept working on songs, you know, just, just cause I've always lived in apartments. So, you know, it's, I don't want to, bang on an electric bass in an apartment and upset the neighbors, but an acoustic guitar seems like something you can get away with. So at home, I always just play acoustic and that sort of created this body of song fragments that I really just wanted to like document so I could move on with my life and get past. No, I don't know how it is with, with you, Mike, but like sometimes you just have like, things that become embedded in your head. And it's like, if I could just fucking record this and then I can be done with it. <laughs> like it's, it'd be such I've, a fucking It's like a fucking uh, spiritual constipation. Like, <laughs> uh, like absolutely. Like it's just like, 
I, I, it happens to me regularly. Like I have this thing that's just kicking around that I just need to get out. Not because like, I think it's like important. I, I, I don't think anything's fuck, like anything I make like fucking like important and like the world needs to hear. It's just like right. some shit that I, I do. Um, but like, yeah, it's a matter of like, I need to get this fucking stupid thing out of my head so that I can go do the next thing. And if I don't do this stupid thing, then I'm just going to feel backed up. Yep. No, 100%. That's, that's what I was going through. Where it's like, if I could just be done with this, then I don't feel like there's also the whole thing where it's like, well, I could, it could always be better. And so, you know, you're, it, like it becomes a thing that is never finished. And it's like, dude, like, yeah, it's so easy to overwork things. And, you know, I'd, I'd much rather hear something in an unfinished form than to hear something that's been overworked or overwrought. And, you know, I, I like music that like leaves something to the imagination where it's sort of like, Oh, okay. Like this song isn't fully realized, but like you hear the potential in it and that somehow becomes even more exciting than like having everything on the recording being perfect and like fully articulated. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, it's, when we were talking about like Limp Biscuit and corn and all that stuff earlier, I feel like sort of disadvantaged talking about that stuff because it's like any sort of major label rock record after like 1992 or 93 is probably not going to win me over just because like I, for no fault of the artist, but just like, it's just not interesting to me. Like I'd much rather hear something that sounds like it was recorded in a week, you know, sort of guerrilla style. Cause mm-hmm. yeah. that's like, you know, I don't know. It's, it's not overworked and it's not, it, yeah. All the shit I just said and still leave something to the imagination where it's like, ah, that might not be like the perfect kick sound, but fuck, you know, that's still like, I know what they're going for. And that's somehow way more interesting. Yeah. Than, uh, yeah. Something that's There's gotta be some uh, exceptions to that though. Like what about like, Queens and Stone Age, or not a Queens fan, really? Wow, man, I don't know. It's not like any none of the desert rock stuff really does it for me. Really, honestly, uh, honestly, me, me neither. There are like elements that you know. There's that one record that Dave Grohl plays drums on. Yeah, that record rips. Yeah, I I mean, I think the drumming on it's cool, but I it's it's all overall not for me. I like the first three Queens records a lot. I don't know. Uh, speaking of major label records, I like the new Turnstile, but yeah, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's. I mean, that's the. I mean, it sounds like like Gorilla Biscuits with like fucking like Tito Puente percussion. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it's it's so good. Yeah, God, it's so fun too. I I saw them at elsewhere, and it was just like. I don't know. You know, this, I just felt like a 15 year old again, you know, like going yeah. to shows. I don't know. It was just so positive and fun. And I don't know. I'm excited for that record because it, it finally feels like, uh, like, I don't know. People my age are appreciating it because I, I liked the first record, you know, <laughs> you know like, I know, yeah, totally. like, I know it's like definitely has its like 311, you know, kind of like weird, like, 90s influences but not the 90s influences that i would expect or necessarily want out of music but it was executed in a way that's like well 
they wrote hooks like they're catchy and it's almost kind of like the the Boris thing where it's like, oh, you did so many things that I thought you weren't allowed to do, but you didn't give a shit. And now it's like kind of amazing. So, yeah, yeah. So, I don't know. I, I, I've always liked that band and I'm glad they're 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 having their moment. So. Yeah, it, it's interesting to think like to this day, it's interesting for me to think of Roadrunner as a major or a semi major label. Um, but I guess, I guess it, I guess it really is. Yeah. What was it? Nickelback Roadrunner? Nickelback were Roadrunner in the States. Slipknot. I think there was something else in Ca- in Canada. Oh, Slipknot's Roadrunner. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Weird. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. That's, it's, it's bizarre for sure. But yeah. 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 But part of me is still like, isn't, isn't that Buzz Evans label? You know, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. What the fuck? Uh, I'm not going to make you uh, sabotage your your metal journalism career by talking. I mean, it, it, it kind of happens every week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, most of the time, this devolves into at, at some point, like me going, I don't even fucking like metal. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and like, you know, the two of us just running our mouths about like a band or institution that like we then have to cut entirely. Um, yeah. cause, cause like, and, and this is like, you had a, a, a Twitter thread that I really liked recently about oh. like, yeah, you know the one I'm gonna fucking talk about. <laughs> um, but like about you know a school of music journalism where like not so much like if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. But like you know, like why waste your time with stuff that you don't like? Um, you know, and uh, like I thought that that was you know very it was it was stated very uh, very elegantly and it was a beautiful sentiment. And uh, uh, as someone who's been on both sides of the, like, had to, like, write the reviews and also had to, like, receive the reviews, like, it's, it's a very fucking strange dichotomy. And uh, I don't know, I, I, I think you gave voice to a lot of kind of important stuff within it. Yeah, I, f- I feel like a couple people got mad about it. Although those people, I think, were usually, like, probably only saw, like, one or two tweets in the whole thread and we're like extrapolating off of that but it's like like would review a record that no one's excited about <laughs> you know? yeah totally yeah. like so much different kinds of music so why are you fixating on like a relatively unknown band that put out a record that you don't really care about <laughs> it's just it doesn't i don't know like i don't need the dialogue on like why one anonymous person is underwhelmed by something like it's that's not an interesting read to me and i get that in an older age of like music criticism where you had these established voices that were like super knowledgeable and you know knew their credentials and you'd like you'd be kind of you developed a relationship on some level with like these critics you know like whether it's the i don't know the robert chris Gows or the fucking uh uh, David Fricks or something like I get that like like I understand why people like will latch on to those opinions but like we don't live in that age anymore now it's just like shoving 
a bunch of records on someone and being like, formulate an opinion on these things by this deadline isn't a good way of creating content yeah. at this point in our age. It's like, let people decide what they want to talk about. Let people talk about the things that they're excited about. Like, I don't know. There's so much music out there and so much access to it that I feel like good music writing at this point is just about turning people onto things or to like shine a new light on things that people maybe don't pick up on, but just being like, Oh yeah, this doesn't check all the boxes for me. It's like such uninteresting writing. So, I don't know. That's my, think, that's my diet. In my opinion, I think what it gets down to is like uh, the playing field is so big that it's kind of impossible to know all, you know, this is cool here. This is cool there. This is cool here. Unless you have like good sources, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so I bet that there was a committee meeting that they were like, boxing is still kind of relevant to our, to our demographic, but maybe this isn't, you know? And then which gets, you know, or maybe like, I think this new band pallbearer is probably worth talking about. You know, like that's, that's the kind of, I don't know. That's it's, I think it's, it, it's, it's that in the worst way. And I think, um, you know, and then, and then you get, like you said, you assign it to some kid and it's done in such a pedestrian, un, like completely unknowledgeable way where they're like, they'll like talk about Paul Bear as this, as if they're like some, you know, like uh, a, a doom metal expert or something like that, as opposed to really talking about where those forefathers are and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's really like kind of like hurry up journalism and like um, an embarrassment at the end of the day, you know? Yeah. But I think that's what happens when you're, when you're trying to do all of it at once and not, and not doing any of it with real quality and attention to detail. Like you can be a good writer and like be a really entertaining writer and still like not know shit about music. And yeah, it's, it'll get published. I mean, I've, I've had those colleagues where it's like, you are such a good writer and like everything you write super entertaining, but like your opinions on music are so asinine and like come from like just a really uninformed and like, yeah. really narrow worldview and it's I've, yeah i've had a yeah. lot of that i had a lot of that i feel like to me um i feel like um mute like music journalism is like kind of like a seesaw you know mm -hmm. where on one side is people who know music and the other side is um people who really know writing you know mm -hmm. and i feel like to find that perfect balance is really impossible. <laughs> and I feel like, and the funny thing is, I, and, and I'm sure you guys can speak to this. So many of our friends, you know, know more about music than any uh, music journalist will ever yeah. know, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, like, uh, I'm sure we could get, I'm sure we could get Berdan's partner on here and she probably like school us on all this shit. <laughs> but then, my 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 partner is like a pretty good example of this. Like for my listener, or, or for our listeners who uh, it, like who might have heard me talk about this before, but uh, like my partner is like a uh, 
like like she like she's like a voracious like record person like she's you know worked in like you know countless distros and whatever and uh she um she used to write reviews for mrr and like she stopped for like exactly like what we're talking about here where she's just like i don't really feel like talking about stuff that i don't like also like it's the way she approaches music is just like either she's like either i like it and i connect with it or i don't and they're like like she's like i don't really need more of a vocabulary than that you know like yeah yeah I'm, my ears aren't open to everything at all times you know so it's like yeah yeah if i can hear something at 9 a.m in the morning and be like i fucking hate this and then yeah. hear it again at nine o'clock at night and be like oh yeah like this, this fucking rules so it's yeah. like just the idea of like foisting something on someone and being like have an opinion on this right now is just like not conducive to like really getting an illuminating perspective on a record like yeah and and my my opinions change on things all the time i mean i've always been someone that you know came up in the pre-digital age where it's like well fuck i bought this fucking crass tape i thought crass was going to sound like minor thread it doesn't <laughs> like, yeah yeah I such a cool what, what is this i guess i'm gonna have to listen to this a dozen times to figure it out and then it's like oh yeah like stations of the cross is like a cool record but like you know if i had just listened to it once on spotify i've been like yeah this is this isn't my thing it's a bit like you know i'm so used to like having to work to appreciate things because i'm like made an actual financial investment in it and a lot of my favorite records are things that I hated the first few times I heard it. And I was like, well, I'm fucking stuck with it. Or I'm stuck in a van with someone that wants to listen to it over and over again. And it's like, I didn't like unwound the first time I heard unwound, you know, I thought unwound was like boring <laughs> and then slow. It's like, why is everything like noisy, but mid tempoed? Like where's all the, where's all the like unbridled angst and you know, you hear enough unwound. It's like, Oh, that, yeah, that's not what that, fans about you know that's there's a whole other dynamic at play there and so many records are like that where it's like yeah it took repeated exposures to latch onto it and i wish more discussions of music were about like giving people that rosetta stone or that like key to like unlock it and, and get difficult challenging or sort of unorthodox music to to click like that's that's way more interesting than like you know the fucking peanut gallery weighing in on the new Lana Del Rey record. And it's like, yeah, yeah. people are either going to like the new Lana Del Rey or they're not. I don't, I don't need a thought piece on it. You know? Yeah. Did you, is there been any kind of like genre of music that you kind of recently got into? I mean, I like, for instance, I, you know, it's really, it's, and you guys are probably like, um, Oh my, you'll probably be like, what the fuck Fred? But I, I never really listened to like a lot of like, outlaw country and like towns and shit like that until like before the uh pandemic you know which was maybe a bad idea to like listen to that during the pandemic <laughs> but that's when i got into it you know yeah i mean i think for me it's like like a lot of like the like 70s jazz stuff is like kind of a recent uh 
recent thing. Cause I think, you know, it's always like jazz has always been that thing where it's like the culture of it seemed really fascinating to me when I was younger, but like, you know, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. And it was either, you know, like the swing revival stuff, which I always just thought was like third wave ska, but even worse. And, <laughs> or it was, you know, like the old school, like Benny Goodman stuff where it was just seemed like, like too, uh, know too conservative but then all, all the wild stuff that people talked about just seemed like totally over my head and you know i feel like i'm still not a very well-versed person in a lot of the the freakier jazz stuff but i i finally had my moment with it where i kind of get it and now it's like yeah that's kind of a thing i'm enjoying uh trying to appreciate more so well, um, Brian, we, we want to, uh, we, you know, we're pushing up against uh, the end of time here, but we, we don't want to take up too much of your time. You got way more important things to do than talk to to us. So we want to just thank you for coming on, man. It's been a good yeah, time. Yeah, man, this is great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Metal Matters. Make sure you like or subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, to get the most recent episodes automatically delivered to your phone. Thanks for listening, and catch you next week. Follow us on Twitter at Metal Matters Pod and Instagram at Metal.Matters.Podcast.